welcome to Satsang. Hello, Vishrant. Can you please talk about who is Osho Rajneesh? Well, you could describe him as a person or you could describe him as how he really lived. As a person, he was this charismatic, highly intelligent, beautiful human being who was my spiritual master. But how he lived was very different. How he lived was he lived his beingness. The awareness was aware of itself inside of him. He was awake. He was enlightened. And so even though you could see him sitting in his chair in satsang, you see him walk in, you see him sit in his chair, the chair was always empty. There wasn't an eye there. There was just beingness. Just pure beingness, aware of itself, awake to itself. And so people get caught up in personality and in looks. I don't realize that all the Buddhas are the same. There's no, there's no difference. They're all the same. They all are pure beingness. And so Osho was Gautama the Buddha. He was Nisigadatta. He was Ramana Maharshi. He was all of them. As anyone who's awake is all of them. The personality might be different. The body shape and look might be different. But there cannot possibly be a difference in beingness. It is always the same and it is always here now. And from my understanding, they all teach the same thing anyway. Surrender and wake up. Bottom line, you know, everything else is frills. Surrender and wake up. Osho's methodology was witnessing the mind. Well, what witnesses the mind? What is this that's aware of the mind? You step into that and you're stepping towards who you truly are, the witness, the one that is just aware. And it's not a person, it's not personal. It's just aware. And people miss that because they're looking for what moves and what makes noise. And beingness, that that's aware, does not move and it does not make noise. And so it's missed. But Osho, he was a phenomenon. He was amazing at getting people to come and sit with him because ultimately that's the best that can happen for anyone who's interested in enlightenment, come and sit with someone who's awake. Feel the presence, allow yourself to dissolve in it. 
allow yourself to disappear completely and merge with it and find it as yourself. And so he did a lot of different things to bring in people to come and sit with him. And they did. He had, he had hundreds of thousands of people come and sit with him. I remember when I was with him in, uh, in America in 1985 and 1984. I think there was like 20,000 people there in the middle of a desert in Oregon sitting with him. And for the first year, in 1984, I was there. He was in silence. You, you go into satsang in the morning for a few hours or three hours and sit in silence with him. And in the evening, darshan, you'd sit for another few hours or so in silence with him. Because satsang is really about association with truth. In that presence, in that Buddha field. That's satsang. The words really in a lot of ways uh, empty they're not don't have much meaning you really want to know how to wake up surrender watch the mind be the witness very simple and that was his main teaching though he taught a whole pile of other things he was a master and he was my master Are there any questions, any statements, or any challenges to this teaching today? The first question, what do you mean when you say that he was your master? It took me a little bit of a while to work out um, what he actually was. When I first came across him, I just was fascinated by him. I had a curiosity uh, about what he was teaching, about a way to freedom. And I already thought I was pretty free. But I wanted to play the game, so I, I went along to see him. And the first year I was there, I didn't, I, I felt him, but I didn't feel much of him. I was a bit closed. I was a businessman. I was a bit closed. The next year I went and I, I actually interviewed him because I was a journalist and he blew my socks off. I started to realize that there was two types of people on this planet, those who are awake <laughs> and those who are asleep. And he was awake. And I realized that he had the potential to help people wake up to the same space he was at, the same truth he was living, the only truth. We are beings. And to live as that, not just to understand it or think of it or remember it, but to live as that. And so I'd taken sannyas, uh, in, I'd become a sannyasin with one of his sannyasins in 1983, and I'd been with him since 1982. But it wasn't really until 1985 that I really took him on as my master because I realized that he could take me somewhere I couldn't, I couldn't go by myself. 
and that he'd mastered his mind. And that he, <laughs> he ran rings around me. And that's when I became quite devotional towards him because I realized it is a love affair with truth that brings people home. It is in that love affair with truth, which quite often begins with a love affair towards the teacher or the master, where people learn to surrender. Because unconditional surrender is like a death. And it's in that love affair with truth that people surrender unconditionally and wake up. And I had a love affair with truth. I loved Osho and I was so grateful for what he had shown me because he gave me glimpses of my own true nature. He blew my mind, gave me glimpses of who I truly was, set me really on the path to freedom. So ever grateful. The next question is from a viewer on YouTube. It is said that an enlightened being such as Osho never needs to return as an incarnation after dissolving. If the personality is such a dream, is just a dream, what is it that comes back? The ego comes back. The I, the I that has unfinished business returns, comes back and starts a new life, does the whole thing again, repetition life after life, bringing back whatever karmas, positive and negative, are attached to it. It all comes back over and over and over again. If someone dies before the body does, if the ego dies before the body does, and the unconditional surrender is the death of the ego. Someone dies, becomes enlightened. There's no need to come back. I think it's possible they could come back again, but I don't think they need to come back again. When I say need, it's like people don't get a choice. You come, if you, if you haven't woken up, you come back, that's it. But if you've woken up, I think there's a choice. You can come back and be a light for others in another lifetime, or you don't need to come back. Because what we are, what we truly are, can't be touched by death. It's always here. But out of compassion, there's a possibility someone who's awake might come back to be a light for those who can't see. Because that's what someone who's awake is. They're a light so others can see. Because the world in a lot of ways is, is suffering. People are caught in their desires, they're caught in their attachments, and they suffer until they die in a, in a lot of ways. It's a sad, sad world, and it's tragic. We lose everything. We, we lose our health, we lose our life, we lose everything we've got, and everyone we know does the same thing. And in samsara, the cycle of birth, life, suffering, death, and birth again, goes on and on. But there is a way out. Enlightenment is the way out. Freedom. Freedom from the mind. Freedom from the body. Freedom from everything. And so those who are awake 
can come back, I think. And be a light for those who are suffering, those who want to be free. The next question is from Faisal on YouTube. What is your comment on why Osho wanted to end his life in his last days? I don't know about that. That's not my um, understanding. I wasn't with him in the last days. I left uh, a few weeks. I left Pune a few weeks before he died. I was very sick. <laughs> I needed to get back to Australia. And uh, I, I wasn't in his company. I wasn't part of his inner crew. I don't know what happened there. Um, I've heard rumours, but I don't, I don't know. Rumours are rumours. I don't know what's true. And if he had been my good friend and I'd been there at his side when he was thinking about what he wanted to do, maybe I'd know, but I, I wasn't there. I was just a sannyasin who was visiting. You'd have to ask that question of someone who was there. Oh, one point, when I was there, he looked like he was absolutely gone. Like, there's just a frail little man. He looked, he looked, he looked quite gone. So he, he didn't look like he was really there in the body much anymore. He looked very frail. What happens to the light of someone like Osho after their body dies? Well, the light's still there in your samadhi. Uh, you can go to Pune and feel the presence uh, that is still there. Uh, and Osho had a garden. And in that garden, he had sannyasins flowering. Some flowered, some didn't. But some flowered. And those flowering sannyasins are now doing exactly the same as what he was doing, supplying the light in the field, in a Buddha field, so others can see. And so he was successful at having people wake up, become enlightened, and now they are continuing what he was teaching, what he was guiding people towards, freedom. And they're around the world. So even though he died physically, the body died. Osho didn't die. Not only is his presence still there in Pune, in India, it's all around the world because it's there with the people that he has helped wake up. The light is still there. <laughs> it's still there. It's still here. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's available for those who want to get free. It's available for the seekers. I've seen videos of Osho and he seems very soft and gentle. Was this your experience of him? <laughs> uh, 
you can pat you can pat a lion and think the lion is very soft and gentle while you're patting it <laughs> until it roars. <laughs> he was a lion. <laughs> he was definitely a lion. <laughs> People get this funny idea that you become enlightened and you all of a sudden you become soft and gentle. It's, you become a lion. There is a roar. You play with someone who's awake and you find out. <laughs> the next question has been written by Pooja. Is it possible to feel his presence now? I sometimes feel that he's around when I'm in deep meditation. Or is this my imagination? Tune in right now. You'll find the same presence that Osha had with anyone who's awake. It can't be different. Same as the ocean is salty wherever you taste it. Presence is the same. The next question. Why did Osha give his sannyasins new names? couple of reasons. When you take sannyas, you're creating a new life for yourself. You're leaving your old life behind and you're starting a spiritual life. And so part of that is taking on a new name because the old name that you had has a certain history with it. And you can leave that history behind. You take on a new name and you start anew. So I took sannyas, uh, 39 years ago now. So I'm 39 years old as a Sanyasin. My name uh, that they gave me, that Osho gave me, was Prem Vishrant. Prem meaning love. And Vishrant meaning restful or relax. And I had enthusiastically asked if I could come and help run the ranch. And they sent me back a name saying, relax. <laughs> and it was the very thing that I needed to learn because I was a, a publisher at the time. And publishing is very high pressure, high, high, high pressure. That's a good way of putting it. Lots of salesmen. I think I had 30 odd advertising space salesmen and, uh, five clerical staff and it was hectic as putting out four or five publications a week. And I got given this name, relax, become restful. And so it was a sadhana, a sadhana being a teaching. You need to learn to become restful love. Oh, 
that was going to be pretty difficult because I was definitely not restful and I didn't experience much love at the time. And so the name that I was given, my sannyasa name, was a name for me to move towards so I could get free. Because in becoming restful love, I had to let go of everything. I had to open up everything. I had to let go of all defences. And then I found restful love. It's not a person. It's, it's, a, it's a feeling, if you like, to be able to rest in love. So beautiful. So for me, it was quite a, a journey going from a three-piece suit businessman publisher to becoming a sannyasin. And in those days, wearing red or orange, called the orange people, and wearing a mala with a picture of my guru on the end, my sales staff, my clerical staff, thought I'd gone nuts. <laughs> but I hadn't. I just... I'd just become a spiritual seeker. I'd become a seeker of truth, wisdom and truth. And I embraced it and I wore the colours and I wore the name and I practised what Osho taught. I practised meditations every day. I practised witnessing the mind all the time and I practised self-inquiry. One other practice I practised because... I recognized that if I really wanted to feel love or know love, I needed to be more open. I was too closed. So I practiced openness. Anytime I found myself in any form of contraction, I opened up and had a look at the belief systems that created that closing and undid them. Because I wasn't interested in being closed. I wasn't interested in being protected, defended. I was more interested in perceiving love. And so sannyas is a spiritual life. It's taking on a spiritual life. And for me, it was in the marketplace, not in a monastery, not in an ashram, but in the marketplace. And if you practice what the teachers teach, it works. <clears throat> the only time it doesn't work is when you don't practice it. So in the practice of openness, that absolutely destroyed me, <laughs> pretty much. In the practice of meditation, becoming more present to what is real, well, it's just brilliant. The practice of self-inquiry, you can find yourself as truth. In the practice of witnessing the mind, you can find yourself as the witness, as that that is aware. And this happens if it's practiced. But it's not going to happen if you just collect knowledge and think that somehow you know something. It happens because of practice. You always remain a beginner and practice. So sannyas is a way of life. To be a sannyasin is to have a spiritual life. From my understanding, you put truth first, you put heart first, and everything else below that. There's nothing else wrong with having things below that, but truth and heart have to be first. Whatever we put first wins. <laughs>
So if we put business first, well, business wins. We put relationship first, well, relationship wins. But if you put truth first, and you put heart first, the chances are you're going to wake up. It's up to you. Do you think that one can benefit from being involved with Osho groups nowadays? I don't really know. So I can't give a clear answer on that. I, when Osho died in 1990, I didn't stop being a seeker. I, as, as a matter of fact, my seeking became more aggressive. But what did happen is I left the religion behind. Um, the religion had served well during the dynamic meditations, the Kundalini at night, the, the mystery school. I was involved in the mystery school for five months in, in India and two lots of four months in uh, America. And that was wonderful stuff. It opened me up. It showed me how my mind worked. It allowed me uh, the space to find no mind in meditation and uh, through self-inquiry to have satori's and discover uh, self as the universe. But at some point, it was more my own practice. And so a lot of people wouldn't have even known that I was practicing, but I practiced all the time. You practice openness. And you can do that when nobody needs to know you're practicing. So anytime anyone can anything or anything, body said anything to me that contracted me, I'd be looking at, well, what's contracted here? What's happened in the mind? Why have I gone to resistance? Not you're wrong. <laughs> what's happening in the inside here? And this is looking at the mind and undoing the mind and creating a mind that is equanimous. It doesn't react to the world, it responds. And so the spiritual practices went on for quite a long time uh, after Osho died. Uh, another eight years before uh, Advaita Vedanta teachers came to town in West Australia. Um, and I got involved with Advaita Vedanta because it's as soon as a Vaidavadana teacher walked in the room, awakening occurred because there was nothing left. The mind had been undone. The mind had learned to surrender. Present moment awareness was pretty much full on, full time. Self-inquiry was amazing. And the presence of the new teachers was amazing. So I didn't really, I don't really know what's happening with the Rajneesh organization so much anymore. I know that for me as a beginner, it was wonderful. It was just amazing. It was just what I needed to give me some structure into higher consciousness, into reality. And Osho was an amazing teacher. I loved his presence. I melted in his presence, dissolved in his presence, disappeared in his presence as an I. 
But what's left when you disappear as an eye? There's something there. What's this that's aware? What's this that is always here? <laughs> so I don't really know. I don't know. Uh, we run um, we run a mystery school here in Perth, West Australia, in Yellowstone, and people do dynamics. They do self-inquiry. They do the different meditations. They do openness, practice of openness. And they take sannyas here. They take new names. They take a new life, a spiritual life, and seek the truth. <laughs> it's continued. You know, people say, well, Osho, Osho died. No, he's alive. He's here. Anywhere where there's someone awake, he's there. He's always there. Same as Gautama the Buddha, always here. <laughs> Same as Ramana Maharshi, Nisigadada, all of them. It's all. The light is here. Next question. Why do you think some of Osho's students ended up doing harmful things? Human beings are human beings. You know, we have a dark side and we have a light side. And if the dark side's allowed to do what it does, well, it gets itself in trouble, doesn't it? There's always a percentage of human beings that get themselves into trouble and there's a percentage that don't. So it's the same with any organisation. When you're dealing with probably 500,000 sannyasins or something like that, there's going to be people who are corrupt, there's going to be people who are good. It's just the way, it's the nature of humanity. I think we all have the same darkness in us and we all have the same good in us. Which one do we... Which do we give credence to? Which do we allow to run? Is up to us. It's up to our integrity. But you can't grab 500,000 people and expect them all to be good guys. That's not how the world works. What do you think was the purpose behind wearing the orange robes? Represented the sunrise, the beginning, fresh beginnings, new beginnings. When the sun comes up, it's a new day. It's a celebration of life, celebration of the new day. It also allowed us to be to wear uh, the colours of someone who was a spiritual seeker. It was telling people what we were into and telling ourselves what we were into. It was a reminder. Wearing Osho's mala around my neck reminded me constantly that I was a sannyasin, that I was a spiritual seeker, that I was seeking wisdom and truth. I was seeking enlightenment. It was a wonderful reminder. When he decided that we didn't need to wear it anymore in 1985 because too many sannyasins were being assaulted around the world, 
I, I, I was unhappy about that because I like wearing the colours. I like wearing his mantle. I like being a devotee of Osho Rajneesh. I love the love affair. And I like to present it to the world. I'm proud to be his sannyasi. What did you have to do as an Osho Sanyasi? Nothing. <laughs> well, when I took Sanyas, uh, I don't think I was really wanted <laughs> because I was asked to do six months dynamics and six months Kundalini's before I could even apply for Sanyas. I found out later that wasn't a requirement. It was just something that the Mars at the center decided that I needed to do because they didn't think that I was fit to be a Sanyasin, I don't think. Because <laughs> I was a businessman, I wasn't a hippie type. I was uh, sharp and different in that way. And so in, in the early, in the eighties, early eighties, uh, it was very much very loose in a lot of ways. And I definitely wasn't loose. <laughs> <laughs> so I was made to do all this uh, meditations before I could even apply for sannyas, but I did, and um, and I got sannyas, and I have no no regrets about that really. It's, it's kind of the way it had to be. As far as what I had to do after that, there wasn't much really. Um, for me, I was very attracted to attend more meditations, to attend a different groups to go into uh, America and do the mystery schools in America uh, and I did that for two years running and then in Pune I went back to Pune before he died and did five months mystery school there and so I, there wasn't really a demand that uh, sannyasins do anything in particular unless of course you're a member of the commune and you were being supported by the commune as a conference member uh, then you'll probably have to do things. But I was not a member of the commune in that I wasn't living in the commune. I wasn't working for the commune. I was still running my publishing company in Fremantle, uh, West Australia. And so I was, I was independent. <laughs> very, very keen. Loved it. What were the teachings of Osho that made him so popular? <laughs> he wrote a book called From Sex to Superconsciousness, which was uh, a big draw for people to come and sit with him in India. And so I think he was a man of his time. I think he was talking about things that were interesting at, at the time. In the 70s, he was talking about sexual freedom and he was talking about uh, super consciousness and tantra and a way to get there. And 
he attracted all these people from all over the world who wanted to be free and he was considered the sex guru for a while and then he changed a little bit to uh, the businessman guru where he, he got the Rolls Royces I think he was 93 and at some stage and he attracted all the business people but really he was just come and sit with me come and sit with me and you go and sit in his presence and you find the silence you find the stillness if you were willing to let go you'd start to dissolve as an eye find yourself as space he was very charismatic very charismatic man i used to love listening to his stories because uh, he was a philosophy teacher at university and a religious teacher and he, he really understood all these stories and I'd listen to his stories and disappear into the nothingness while listening to him. Find peace, find love. All the things that we really, really want but quite often we put aside because we're too busy making money. He was, he was providing. How come Osho did not speak for a period of time in his later years of teaching? I don't really know. He was in silence when I became a sannyasin and he continued to be in silence for another uh, two years after I took sannyas. He had a heap of books out by that stage and a heap of recordings. And so I used to listen to his recordings and read his books. I don't really know why he went into silence. Um, so I can't make a comment on that. Do you think that Osho had a big plan when teaching his students? He had a big plan, all right. He was trying to create the new man. Uh, the, He's trying to create awakened men and women to help save this planet. It's like the only way that this planet's going to be saved is if people become more conscious. And he was trying to facilitate a consciousness shift. The new man, he called it. Zorba the Buddha, he called it. In the world, but not of the world. Zorba in the world. Buddha, not in the world, of the world. And he created a few. He was trying for a lot, though. He was an experimenter. He tried so many different things. Uh, just humanity, the way humanity is, few woke up and few didn't, which is maturity uh, issues and also uh, karma issues. He, he did a pretty good job in that quite a few people woke up uh, through him. And uh, as a result of that, still waking up through the, the people that he woke up, they've become teachers. So it's, it's, it's happening. The new man's happening, slowly. Silver the Buddha's happening, slowly. <laughs> Thank you.
why did Osho have 99 Rolls Royces? I think it was 93. Um, I, he wasn't I, absolutely positive he wasn't attached to anything. And so it's just an advertising ploy. Just, you know, yeah, come and sit with me. <laughs> Definitely attracted attention to him. Same as uh, some of his books did, uh, attracted attention. It's like Gautama the Buddha in his day 2,500 years ago would walk from village to village teaching the Dharma and wouldn't stay under the same roof for more than one night. That's a pretty slow way to, to get the message out of freedom. Osho was going at it a little bit at a little bit harder pace. He was attracting the attention of the world through the media, through different methodologies, from books to Rolls Royces. Come and look, come here, come and sit with me. And if you're willing to sit with him and you're willing to be open. Your whole life could be changed. So I think that he was just advertising. He was just the Buddha advertising. Come and sit with me. The following question has been written by George on YouTube. Hi, Vishrant. Do you med meditate daily? And if so, what meditations do you do? George, I'm in meditation all day long, every day. Meditation simply means being aware of what is real. The only time we're not in meditation is when we're dreaming, when we've got our thoughts going and we have awareness on them. My mind went silent about 22 years ago. I'm here every moment. Next question. What were Osho's satsangs like? <laughs> Gosh, I attended so many of them. Uh, for me, I used to sit in sit in satsang and just melt, just merge with the nothingness that we are. So the mind would dissipate. I'm still present, but practically no mind, just listening to whatever he was saying or sitting in silence in his presence. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just doing it because everyone else was doing it. It just turns out that when you sit in the presence of someone who's awake, it starts to alter you. Just the presence does. It made me more keen on discovering who I truly was. It made me practice, want to practice meditations, want to practice self-inquiry. It made me feel like I wanted to celebrate life because he talked about celebrating life. Zorba, celebrating life. The Buddha. Wow, that's another story, isn't it? Find yourself as truth. I love being with him. It was a great adventure, an amazing adventure. Life is an adventure. 
but sometimes people they don't make it a really good adventure. The best adventure is the adventure towards higher consciousness, is the adventure towards enlightenment, is enlightenment itself. This is the best adventure. In your opinion, what is Osho's legacy? <laughs> How about freedom? <laughs> what better legacy can you leave than to leave the legacy of freedom? You follow his advice. You practice his meditations. You practice what he was teaching. Freedom. Freedom from this. <laughs> yeah, it's the same legacy that all Buddhists have. Freedom. Osho seemed like a very surrendered person. Did he speak of how he developed this? Probably. The thing about waking up or awareness becoming aware of itself is the mind drops. It surrenders. And then it's used like a tool in a toolbox. When it's required, it's pulled out of the toolbox and used. When it's not required, it goes back to the toolbox. And so you could say that mind has been mastered, but really it's a surrendered mind. And having a surrendered mind is very beautiful. It doesn't bother you anymore. <laughs> well, it doesn't bother itself anymore. That's a better way of putting it. <laughs> what we are, what we truly are, pure awareness can't be touched by anything, ever. Are all Buddhas the same? Yep. You can't have a different Buddha. You've got to, what is the Buddha? That's a very good question. It's not a person. The Buddha is the energy field produced when awareness becomes aware of itself in a human being. There is a field of energy produced called a Buddha field. That is the Buddha. The Buddha is not a person. Someone who's awake is it's not personal anyway. It's a field of energy produced by awareness being aware of itself. And it's the only way that you can actually tell if someone's awake or not anyway, because anyone can say the right words or have the right mannerisms. But someone who's awake has a Buddha field. And if they're fully awake, they have that Buddha field 24 hours a day. And for those who can perceive it, it is there 24 hours a day. And that's the only way you can tell if someone's awake if the Buddha field is there 24 hours a day.
Why do you think Osho woke up at such a young age? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. I believe he woke up when he was 21. That's pretty young. But then again, uh, there are other uh, awake people on the planet today, I'm being one of them, who woke up much earlier than that. The only thing I can say about that is that they did the work in previous lives, that this is not the first time they've been playing this game. And so people come in that you see, they seem more advanced or they seem more conscious, or they have a better chance. Well, maybe they've done this in previous lives, they've done the work. We don't know. <laughs> it's all karmic. Learning to surrender is difficult because we're basically, as humans, survival mechanisms. It goes against all our programming, all our patterning. But the key to enlightenment is surrender, unconditional surrender of the mind. The next question has been written by George. What techniques did you do with Osho to silence your mind 20 plus years ago? I'm interested. Okay, I don't George. even know where this. Okay, George, what had happened was I had, after Osho died in 1990, I continued to practice meditation daily and self-inquiry and witnessing the mind and the practice of openness. In Eight years later, in 98, um, a, a guru came to town down south of Perth uh, in Denmark. And I went down to see him for a 14-day retreat. The moment he walked in the room, awakening occurred. I found myself as the universe. And then I stayed for the 14 days, did the retreat and flip-flopped all over the place, back and forth being this ego-based reality, being this ego-based reality. And then a few other teachers came, he left, a few other teachers came, uh, Gungaji, Bartman and Isaac came back to town again. And during this, I went to all the retreats, I hosted most of these, some of these teachers and um, continued to practice self-inquiry diligently because I took Ramana Maharshi on as a um, teacher, even though he died four years before I was born, I took his, him on as my teacher and practiced his teaching of self-inquiry, which is to inquire into every thought that arises in the mind as to whence it has come, who's aware or what's aware. And after one year, uh, after a retreat with a, an awakened teacher, awakening was there during the retreat and after the retreat, it was still there. And it's been there now 22 years. The mind didn't go silent at that stage, but it was like it was in another room now. It wasn't really being listened to. And as time went by uh, a few months, it was like it was in a further room, it was further away. And after six months, it just stopped talking to itself. It just rested in being this, in profound contentment for no reason. During that six month period after awakening, I sat still pretty much every day 
all day long for 18 hours in a chair, basically staring at space <laughs> because I was so profoundly content just doing that. During that period of time, uh, I lost uh, my business, I lost my money, I lost my reputation, I lost my wife, I lost my children, everything disappeared. But the one thing that didn't disappear was beingness. And it's been there ever since. And so the mind basically didn't go silent before awakening, though it was definitely quiet because I was a meditator and I wasn't that interested in the story. I definitely didn't involve myself in victim orientation. And so there wasn't a great deal of drama around me. But my mind wasn't quiet before awakening. It became absolutely dead quiet six months after awakening. Hope that helps, George. How did you develop a quieter mind in the earlier stages of your practice? Well, that began when I was uh, 19 and I got involved in encounter therapy. Uh, and read a book by Ken Keyes called The Handbook to Higher Consciousness. And Ken talked about uh, how, we produce our, uh, how we produce our mind and how we uh, don't need to be victims of life and that we don't need to support worry and a few other different things. And I, I, I understood what he was saying and I stopped being a victim to life. I refused to be a victim of um, other people. I refused to be a victim of... Um, circumstance or of myself when i say i refused i refused to blame i didn't go into the world i left the world of uh you make me feel and swapped it for the world of i make myself feel i'm responsible for my feelings you can't do anything to make me feel you, i'm not a victim of you so i removed victim orientated thinking from my mind it took a few years but i removed it completely and then i removed worry at the same time because I could see that as a total waste of time as well. Anytime worry grows, I, I just stopped it. And after two years, that stopped coming as well. And so my mind wasn't entertaining drama, but on top of that, I was into extreme sports. I was into motorbike racing, car racing, rugby, martial arts, uh, hunting sharks underwater, anything that was um, dangerous, I was into. And it wasn't until I took up meditation with the Rajneesh organization when I was 28 that I realized I was in love with the present moment. And all of those dangerous things that I did just took me to the present moment. I found in meditation, I didn't need to risk my life to be in the present moment. And so in a lot of ways, meditation took the place of the extreme sports because I was finding in meditation the same space that I was finding in extreme sports. I didn't stop diving until I was about 40 and I was still riding motorbikes. <laughs> I love it. We have this amazing space suit called a body to investigate and play in the world with. It's the Zorba. And it's still playing. Next, we have a statement written by George. Uh, I'm interested in meditation, 
but don't even know where to start or how to start. I'm just starting out my life and don't know how to apply meditation in my life. Do you have, do you have any comments on this? Yeah. George, most Westerners, I take it you probably are a Westerner, you may not be, but most Westerners are full of pain because we live in a society that represses. Uh, we don't live in a society that really expresses and uh, clears. We live in a society that represses. So Osho Rajneesh designed two great meditations for helping people clear some of the energy they carry so they can then sit silently. One was called dynamic meditation, and it's still happening. And the other is called kundalini meditation. Dynamic's done at six in the morning. Kundalini's done at five in the evening or six in the evening. Now, if you go online and Google it, you'll find both those meditations and the instructions on how to do them. And let's see. I did dynamic and kundalini for about five years straight, maybe six. Loved it. Helped clear the body out help me find the silence and stillness inside myself. A lot of people say you just go and sit, watch the breath. Well, I don't agree. I think that we need to clear what's inside of ourselves first. Then we can sit easily and watch the breath. And these meditations that Osho designed do that. They facilitate that. They're active. They're active because they allow you to release and then be quiet. After I'd finished doing Kundalini's and Dynamics for a few years, I used to just sit and watch my breath at, at my lip. And I could do that because I'd cleared a lot of the junk inside of myself that I'd picked up and repressed over a lifetime. And so towards the end, I was just watching breath. But in the beginning, I did a lot of Dynamics and a lot of Kundalini's and they kept me fit not just cleared the house and allowed me to sit. And so I recommend those meditations and you'll find them online and the instructions on how to do them. They're wonderful things. So if I was you, that's where I'd begin, George. I don't think it's a good idea for people to try to just sit if they haven't done any clearing, if they haven't done anything to clear the house of whatever traumas or repressed emotionality they might have. I think that's more of an advanced meditation. People love to think they're advanced, but if you're full of pain, you need to clear that first. And so it's up to you, George. Do, do Kundalini, do Dynamic. Get back to me and tell me how you go with them. I, I recommend them. They're great. Thank you for that, Sam. Good to see your brave hearts here today. <laughs>